you will, turn back in your Bibles to Psalm 40. We will be sitting there for the remainder of our meditation this evening. You are in Psalm 40. We are presently working through a small stint of Christology, which is the study of Messiah, Messiah, Hashim, Yeshua, Jesus Christos. He is our Lord Jesus Christ. He is the subject of God's eternal redemptive wishes and desires and plans and goals and stated purpose. Psalm 40 will be our meditation, the title of our message today, Lo, I Come in the whole book, not part of the book, but the whole book, it's written of me. There is a God and he is savingly revealed to humanity in the mercy of the gospel through his son. There is a God who is savingly revealed through his son by the gospel. That needs to be known. All men will have to answer to what they know about God. But saved folk who really know him in the pardon of their sins by the merits of Christ. They know more than about God, they know God. And that is an eternally different perspective. The Bible tells us that God has revealed himself in his son, who is also the savior of his people. He is the seed of the woman, matriarchally, and he is Abraham's promise, covenantally. He is David's Lord, monarchically, And he is the son of God eternally. And as the divine monarch, we call him the theomonarchial ruler of the universe. If you can get those long syllable words, a theomonarchial ruler. He is the God that rules over everything as a monarch. If you miss that imagery, you fail to understand God at his central revelatory purpose. God is a great king in all the earth. He is called the king of kings and lord of lords. That is the highest title that begins describing God in the majesty of his sovereignty. And God has chosen as his vicar, his own son, the Lord Jesus, to be the Lord of all. That was the message of the apostles. Jesus is Lord of all. And he's the Lord from eternity past to eternity future. He was the Lord in the Old Testament. He is the Lord in the New Testament. There is but one Lord. That's what Israel was taught here. Oh, Israel, the Lord, your God is one Lord. And there is one triune glorious God who is the Lord of the universe And his son is the featured epiphany, the featured revelation, the featured manifestation in total of the invisible God. Now, Christianity has failed to keep this in mind. You and I can know nothing about the invisible God apart from the visible God. You and I can know nothing but speculative notions about God apart from the certainty of who God is in the certainty of who Christ is. Everything else is speculation. Jesus is the exact representation 
of the image of the invisible God. And if you call those adjectival expressions, you know we're dealing with a paradox. The invisible is being made manifest by the visible. Jesus came into the world in order that he might make manifest who the father is. And men and women that know God in the person of his son know this to be the case. The question is, how does Christ come? How does Messiah come? Well, he comes two ways and one way more particularly we want to deal with today. He comes in providence. It's a theological term that sits well with those of us who understand that God is sovereign. What does that mean? All the affairs of the world are governed by God. Nothing comes or goes, stands or falls without God decreeing it. Everything is working after the counsel of God's own will. Nothing is out of control. God is excellent and impeccable in his knowledge. Not a creature in the universe can move, exist, defy or affirm, settle in its submission to God or fight against God unless God approves of it. And the monarch of the world lets his people know that even though things are chaotic in our eyes, they are totally under the control of him who walks on the water, who governs the storms, whose feet run swiftly on the clouds to manage his universe. It's extremely important for you and I to know that Jesus himself declares that he comes. That's Psalm 40, verse 7. We can start there, but we're going to back up to our first verse. I want you to capture this. This is what we're teaching right now in our Tuesday, Friday study. You will hear of individuals being announced to come. You know, uh, famous persons have their PR companies go out before them and say such and such is coming to town. Or you will hear about dignitaries and they will send out the media and the media says they'll be in town on October 25th at 7 p.m. in such and such a place. You hear this about men. Please, I want you to get this right now. God doesn't need a PR company. He always announces his own coming. And what makes the verse in our text important for you to grab a hold of is because if anyone else is his PR, it's you. Besides you and me, God's his own PR. Listen to what the language says. Then said what? That's a first person pronoun saying that the person that is talking is talking about himself. Then said I, lo, I come. God announces his own coming. He announces it in creation. The Bible tells us in Psalm 19, the heavens declare the glory of God, the, the earth and the firmaments his handiwork. There is no place where the line of God's truth does not show up in creation. And again, Romans chapter one says the whole creation testifies to God's eternal power and Godhead so that human beings are without excuse. Creation testifies to God. We're just blind. Creation is ready to stand as a witness in the courtroom of God that they told you every day that God was in control. The rising of the sun, the setting thereof, the seasons and the harvest and the blessings, the whole earth is filled with the mercy of the Lord and it testifies to God's management and economy. Am I making some sense? But there's another way in which God is made known. And this is through the depository of truth that the world has tried to get rid of over and over again. It's that little code that God has left us called the scriptures. 
the graphe, okay, the writings. It's your Bible. Notice what he says. Look, I am the one who is coming in the volume of the one. Now, that's code for God's people to make sure they draw nearer to God with a more precise understanding of what he says because he's given us a book. And that book is the Bible, the word of the living God. That's going to be our subject today, because in our studies, we have been making our way towards December 24th, which is our celebration of the fact that our Savior was born. That is the doctrine of the incarnation. And we're making our way there. Incarnational theology presupposes the coming of Messiah, does it not? He cannot be incarnate unless he first what? Comes. So we're learning about his coming. And by the way, you should know that the coming of Christ is your total salvation. If he doesn't come, you're not saved. If he doesn't come again, you're not totally saved because you and I are in between grace and glory. And we need a final manifestation of the son of the living God to bring us into the total blessings of a resurrected and a glorious state. Am I making some sense? The Bible tells me in 2 Timothy chapter 4, 8, everybody who understands the coming of Christ loves his appearing. There is a predisposition on the part of the people of God that says, even so, Lord Jesus, come. We love his appearing. And I'm not talking about on the last day in the parousia. I'm talking about the coming of Christ in the revelation of scripture by the illuminating work of the Holy Ghost in our heart so that we get to know him more and more every day. Please get our studies on Tuesdays and Fridays because we are addressing this. You must know that this is the will of him that sent me, that all who sees the son and believes on him has eternal life and I will raise him up on the last day. That is an immutable promise. So the question might be, have you seen him? And so our elder is praying that some here today might have a a revelation of him. And if you do, it will be according to this book. He comes, as we are told in Psalm 40, verse 7, these words, then then said I, lo, I come in the volume of the book. It is written of me. It is written of who? It is written of me. So why does he come? He comes for two prominent reasons. One is he comes because he's sent. He comes because he sent. The Lord Jesus is the one that said, my father has sent me into the world. I want you to capture that. This is what we're teaching. Jesus doesn't come into the world arbitrarily. He doesn't come independently. The son of the living God comes because the father has what? Sent him. So he's on a mission with his daddy. This is called the collaboration of the triune God. The father sends him, the son comes, and the Holy Spirit brings us to a saving knowledge of the coming of Jesus. This is a triune love of God. So when you think about Jesus coming, on the one hand, he's coming because he came to do what? The will of his daddy. That's what he's saying over in verse 8. I love to do your will. Do you see it? Say, what is the will of Jesus or the will of the Father to come and save his people? For God so what? Loved the world. Here's how he loved the world, that he sent his only begotten son, that whosoever believes on him should not perish. That's how God loves us. His love for us is not emotional. His love cannot be quantified by the word soul. That's an emotional expression. 
His love is quantified by in this manner, in this way. That's what that little conjunction means. Only in this particular way can we say that God loves us because you and I got a problem. That's number two. The second reason for which Jesus comes is because we got issues. I, I love the way our elder put it in verse one of the Psalms we read. It's really an explication, not a but. When we say we love him because he first loved us, him first loving us is that he heard our cry. Point number one, look at your Bible. Let's go to work. Point number one, why does Messiah come? Because he is compelled by the needy sinner. He's compelled by the needy sinner. Look at the opening of Psalm 40. Beautiful Psalm. I wish I had time to give you some theology on the Psalms. A lot of you guys already know it, but we are in the uh, end of the first section of David's writings. There are five sections to the Psalms and David will end the first section in Psalm 42 at the end of the verse. It gives you the clue, but we are at the end of Psalm, uh, the first section in Psalm 40, verse one. Notice what David says, ladies and gentlemen, I waited patiently for the Lord. Do you see that? I waited patiently for the Lord and he did what? He inclined unto me and heard my cry. There it is. This is my point. The reason Jesus comes is because of the compelling need of sinners. Imagine crying out to the Lord in your desperation and the Lord hears you. Is that a good thing or what? Is that a reason to worship God? Listen, so let's work through this because I want you to walk with me with David. We have been here before. Many churches have have spoken on this, preached on this. I waited patiently on the Lord. Do you see that? I want to drill down into that because David is a master theologian as well. In almost all of his psalmic writings, the mizmars of his psalms, these are all songs, by the way. They were written with musical scores to be sung in the congregation in Israel and Almost everything that David ever wrote in the Psalms can be actually exegeted by the Psalms itself. I can go to several Psalms to unpack this. When he said, I waited patiently, I want us to capture the essence of what's going on here. David is saying my situation, and this is David, first person singular. David is the instrumental voice. God is the divine voice. As you'll see, Jesus is the essence of the voice. But David says, I waited patiently on the Lord. Do you guys see that? What does that mean, David? What are you saying? David is saying, I waited on the Lord because there was nothing else I could do. I want you to hear what he's saying. I waited patiently on the Lord because there was no other way out. I'm waiting on the Lord because there is no other option. I'm waiting patiently on the Lord because I have exhausted every other resource. I'm waiting on the Lord because there is nothing else I can do. Now, I can waste a lot of time arguing with you as to why you wait so long to call on God when you're in trouble. I could waste a lot of time. But what I want you to see in the verse before we walk forward in it is that the reason why David says, I waited patiently on the Lord is because David came to understand that the trouble that he was in 
was unsolvable by himself. What David came to realize is what we see in sub point A of our text. David is engaging in the struggle of a serious trial. See, now only a few of you in the house know what I'm talking about. We are so disadvantaged in America because we are so well off that very seldom can we even begin to empathize with a serious trial. Most of our trials we overcome by our own mechanisms, our own manipulations, our own coercions, having many ways out. That's what, that's what Solomon says. In the day of prosperity, rejoice. Why? Because you can answer a lot of things by skills and by money and by relationships and by different resources. That makes sense. When you can answer it yourself, God wants you to. Don't sit there and the bills got to be paid and you got a three day notice and you got money in the bank and say, Lord, I'm waiting on you. The Lord has said, no, I'm waiting on you. I'm waiting on you to quit being stupid and slide that card or write that check or call the company. That's why there's money in the bank. Don't play God. God will not be played. Am I making some sense? If you're going to call on God, you call on God for thanksgiving for the resources that he gives you so that you can actually be a responsible human being. But the text in front of us is not dealing with all such trials. Those are fine. We should exhaust every resource when it's our responsibility. But here, what David is saying is, I'm trapped. I'm trapped. See, every now and then you come to know when you're trapped. And I assert to you that he's a trap in the which he is what? Struggling, struggling. And the more he wrestles, the tighter it gets. The more he struggles, the deeper he sinks. I want you to capture that because that's what David is saying. If you don't see it already, the text will explicate it. Notice what he says in verse two. We'll come back. God brought me up out so also out of a what? horrible pit. Now, ladies and gentlemen, a pit is a constraint system. It's a condition by which you don't have much room to the left or to the right. It means you're encompassed about. It's like a prison. You're trapped in that pit. And David will hint at what the nature and character of that pit is. But when you are in a pit, it means you have nowhere else to go. See what I'm saying? And then he gave us this this advertisement about that pit. Guess what he said? This is a horrible pit that I'm in. I'm in a horrible pit. This is a horrifying pit. Not only is he stuck, he's stuck in a situation of horror. See, again, you don't know what that is. You are you have been so free from struggles and troubles and pains. And may I just for a moment help you understand that David wants you to derive from what he's saying, that this carries a broad, a broad psychological and emotional connotation. A broad psychological and emotional connotation. What does that mean? When you are in the midst of trouble initially, you can kind of handle it. Because you begin to rationalize as you're supposed to think through why it's here, maybe rationalize and justify you shouldn't be in it. And then you are also calculating as to whether or not you can come up out of it. You will even create your own plan of escape. Am I making some sense? But when once all of those measures are exhausted and you get to the place where you don't know if you're going to even come out of this, now you are trapped. See what I'm getting at? 
Now you're trapped. So when David says, listen to me, I was in a horrible pit. We can look at this circumstantially. We can look at this economically. We can look at this physiologically. We can look at this psychologically. We can look at this relationally. Can we not? We can look at this spiritually as we ought to, because all of those categories will impact your life. You want to see somebody that's depressed? Find somebody that's trapped in a situation that they have exhausted all measures to get themselves out of. They have not been able to escape. And the only thing they can do now is wait for somebody else to deliver them. That's what David is saying. Y'all keeping up with me? Let me see if I can walk us into this under point number one. Struggling in a serious trial is what Peter said to the church that was called the church scattered abroad uh, in Babylon. It's First Peter 5, verse 13. He said to the church, he says, I'm praying for you. You have been scattered abroad from Jerusalem, Judea, etc. The church that is at what? Babylon, elect together with you, salute you, and so doth Marcus, my son. This is the church that Peter said in First Peter chapter uh, 1, think it not strange, think it not strange of the fiery trials that are to try you. Look at chapter 4, verse 12. Have y'all ever been through a fiery trial? So most people, somebody just said, no, I love that. Be honest about it. Notice what he says in First Peter chapter 4, 12. He says, beloved, do not think it what? Concerning the fiery trial, which is to try you. I don't want to drill down here too long because I want to go back to David. But trials have different characteristics. What David is saying about this one is this one is fiery. This one is fiery. Now, fiery trials are dangerous to us because we are mortal creatures. And uh, the metaphor of the fire is the danger of the consumption of our, our mortality. No one wants to be encompassed about by the flames of fire. Did y'all get that? I just told you that he was calling them the church where? In Babylon. That means what Peter is doing as a shepherd is encouraging them to remember there were three other brothers that were in Babylon as well who had got placed into the trap of a monarchical, uh, maniacal king who thought he was God. Those three brothers were Hananiah, Azariah, and Mishael. And Nebuchadnezzar threw them into a pit That's a trap. And they were in a what? Fiery furnace. Now, they had already went in resolved that if the Lord wants to deliver them, they'll be delivered. And if not, it still don't matter because we're not going to bow down to this Babylonian system with its God hating, Christ hating uh, uh, opposition to the true and the living God. So those brothers were ready to suffer, weren't they? They did not think it was strange. They knew that God was up to something. So sometimes your trials about are about one thing coming to resolve that you got to wait on God. Let's go back to our text. I want to build on this so you can see it. Christ is compelled to come because of needy sinners who are engaged in the struggles of serious trials. And what 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 David does in using this construction in verse one, I what I waited what? patiently for the Lord. Now, it's important to get what he meant by that. This is what he meant. It meant once he reduced his situation down to helpless, now he's operating out of a hope because his only hope is the Lord showing up to deliver him. 
Now, I want to I make this work for you. This is under subpoint B in our outline. David now is in a situation after coming to understand that he's got to wait on God to deliver him. He is now stretching out to God. Do you guys see that? Stretching out, struggling, stretching out, struggling, stretching out. You may take the metaphor of stretching your hands way up to heaven. Lord, my hands are lifted up to you, right? Calling on God. Y'all got that? You see a brother or sister with the hands stretched out and they're not playing church because a lot of people do. But when you stretch your hands out to God, you're saying, God, see me. See me. Here the metaphor is the idea of the neck being stretched up and the idea of looking for someone. David is looking for God, looking for God. And the neck is stretching and looking as far as it can. This is the mental idea of him being completely fixed on God as his deliverance. Y'all got that? He's in a trap. He cannot get out. But that trap has not gotten his mind. He's in a trap. He cannot get out, but his mind is free to stretch up out of the trap and look for his deliverance. And what he tells you and I is to wait patiently on the Lord by stretching your neck up and out of your predicament and look to the heavens from which comes your help. Some of y'all were instructed to do it. And I know the nature of the congregation. I pastor y'all don't listen to anything I say. I told you last week to go look at my little iguana friend. Did y'all go look at my little iguana friend? Do you know as he was scattering about, once he realized, man, I'm around a bunch of snakes. Y'all remember that? He said, I better get out of here. And he started running. Y'all remember that? Now, what had happened was the snakes were set up in a strategic way because they know how their prey runs. And I'm going to talk to you about how the devil gets you here in a moment. But that brother started running. And the next thing you know, he ran into about 10 snakes that put him in a coil. Did, did he not? That brother was in a coil. And one of my sisters emailed me back and said, Pastor, I was rooting for the iguana. I was rooting for the iguana. I said, I was too. And here he is trapped. I'm thinking he's gone. He's gone. He's gone. That brother's neck was stretched out. His neck was stretched out. In other words, even though he was trapped, his neck was stretched out. And he continued resting. If you notice, he waited, he waited, he waited, he waited. And then deliverance came and he found himself loosed from those snakes. And he started making it up the hill. Did he not? That's what David is saying. I waited patiently on the Lord and he heard my voice and he heard my voice. See, the circumstance looked at really dire. But that brother waited, did he not? He didn't give in. He didn't settle into his doom. He simply waited for an escape. And that's what our text is describing under point number one. He's compelled by needy sinners who are struggling in serious trials, stretching out to God in what? So let David speak to us about this over in Psalm 25, verse three. Notice what he says in Psalm 25, verse three. We're going to look at three verses here. He says, yes, let none that do what? Wait on thee, be what? That's right, because David knows to wait on the Lord and be of good courage is for God to come along and strengthen your heart. Is that what the Bible says? So when you wait on God, no matter what it looks like externally, God is not a man that he should lie, nor the son of man that he should repent. If you call upon the name of the Lord, he will eventually deliver you. Do you know that? 
Now, uh, while you are trapped, it looks really bad. But remember, you don't have anything to do when you're trapped and have exhausted all your resources but to wait on God. So when people are saying, what you going through, brother, I'm going through a trial. What are you doing? I'm waiting because I have no other option but to wait. And I've been told that God is a very present help in time of trouble. I also have been told by the same David that God said, in the time of trouble, call upon me. So that's what we mean by waiting on God. I will deliver you and you will what? Glorify me. This is what David is saying. Let none that wait on you be what? Look over at verse five. He says the same thing over in verse five. I want you to capture it. Psalm 23, five, leave me in thy truth and teach me for you are the God of my salvation. On thee do I wait all the day. You got it? His neck is stretched out to God because God actually believed that David actually believed that God was his teacher. He's the one that can explain every trouble that David is going through. So when David got in trouble, he didn't look to the media. He didn't look to the mail. He didn't look to the earthly resources. He stretched his neck up to God. Remember, that's what the term means. To wait on God is to anxiously stretch, to be on the tiptoes of faith because you're waiting for an answer from God because God said he will answer us. Call upon me, I will answer you. You just got to learn how to wait. Now that is a trial, is it not? That is a trial, but David is a good one to teach us. Notice what he says over in verse 21 of the same psalm. He says it like this. Let integrity and uprightness do what? And I want you to get it because, you know, we love to argue all kind of theological concepts. But we learned long ago that the integrity of the upright is the presence of the Holy Ghost in us. Did not did not I teach you that you and I don't have any integrity if God is not working in us. When you're born again, Christ, the hope of glory resides in you. The spirit of God is in you. If you don't have the spirit of God, you're none of his. And when you do have the spirit of God, guess what he's going to do? Lead and guide you. When you have the spirit of God, the spirit of God is going to bear record with your spirit that you're a child of the living God. When you have the spirit of God, even though the spirit will sometimes lead you into trouble, he will tell you that he's the only way out of that trouble. The goal sometimes of the spirit of God is to teach you how to rest in God as Christ had to learn how to rest in God. Am I making some sense? If you're a child of God and you have the spirit of God, I don't care how difficult your circumstances are. I don't care how deep your pit is. The Holy Ghost is there too. That's what David is saying, is he not? David said, if I make my bed in hell, if I take the heights to the heaven, if I go to the furthest ends of the earth, if I span the universe, even there, God, you are there and you are totally acquainted with all my ways. That brings David comfort. See, what I like about David is that David knew God and God knew David. This is what we're learning about the coming of the Lord in our studies, that to acquaint yourself with God and be at peace is to know him well. You got to know God if you want the benefits of peace in the midst of a storm, don't you? So you'll meet a lot of Christians and they'll fall apart in a thousand different ways in their storms because they don't acquaint themselves with God enough to be at peace. Now, what a joy it is when everybody else is falling apart because of a decree coming down from the government. And then you find the saint resting in the Lord because he has a greater decree called the word of the living God. Right. 
Let the peace of God, which passeth understanding, keep your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Right. So the people of God are going to have to learn how to settle into the reality that sometimes God lets you get into traps of your own making. And he takes his time coming to get you because he wants to make a movie out of it. We're getting ready to see that here in a moment. He wants to make a movie. Listen, this ain't for your honor. This is for his. So God will keep drinking his tea. He'll keep eating his sandwich. He hears you calling, sweet Polly purebred. He hears you calling, but he's not coming to the rescue until it's time for him to be glorified. And he gave you the Holy Ghost in order for you to cry. He did not give you the Holy Ghost for you to shine. He gave him to you for you to cry, Abba, Father, Abba, Father. That's why he gave him to you. He gave him to you so you can cry. See, a lot of Christians haven't learned how to cry yet. They haven't learned how to cry yet because they haven't been in this kind of inextricable situation. They're used to solving their problems or begging for money or doing whatever they can to get out. And they're glad when they get out. They don't go, thank you, Lord. But they're coming from resources. David's coming from nothing. It's extremely important to get. Subpoint B, stretching out to God in hope. Powerful, powerful concept that David knows is, is extremely important for us to capture. I want you to see it again in the Psalm, Psalm 27, 14. I know this word is for somebody, so hear it. Here's what he does. David says, do what? Wait on the Lord. There it is. Hold on. That's our word. Wait on the Lord. Stretch your neck out. Look for God. And while you're looking for God, be of good courage. It really is remain faithful, remain hopeful. That's all that is because courage is simply a fruit of faith. You do know that, right? This is what God told Joshua, right? Be strong, Joshua. Be of good courage. Am not I with thee? And it's important for you and I to know that. Wait on the Lord. Be of good courage. And he shall do what? Strengthen your heart. Have you ever had God to strengthen your heart in the midst of a trouble? Have you ever felt that grace to come in, settle you down and bring you into a state of confidence inexplicable to your mindset? You know, a moment earlier, you were in seven different directions at once. And then the spirit of God calmed you down by reminding you of what God's word says. And you found yourself operating again out of that peace that you cannot explain. And you know now God is with you. It's going to be all right. No matter what the outcome is, it's going to be all right. Because what God is keeping is our heart. If he doesn't keep your heart, you're going to act a fool. You're going to hurt somebody, kill somebody. She burns something up. Right? This is what we are. We're extremists by nature. God has to calm you down. And when he calms you down and you just wait on the Lord, you, you come to discover that he's the one in control of providence. And then he begins to move things, does he not? And you go, look at the Lord. Providence came through again. And then, you know, after that trial, we go, Lord, I'm so ashamed for acting such a clown. I did not trust you. I was mad and angry. I was loading my pistol. I was setting up strategies. I was parking outside their house. I was doing all kind of stuff. I already saw them dead and buried and everything. I'm ready to burn up the whole city. Right there. Now, see, all I need is one witness. I'm, I'm, a, I'm a sinner, not you. I'm a sinner. Right? I, I work those plans at 2 or 3 o'clock in the morning. And then by the time I get up, I say, yes, you can't do that. Boy, you're a pastor. Stop all that. 
You can't do that, boy. Stop all that. Them your old days. And God calms you down. And then the next thing you know, like clouds that dissipate. That trouble seem weighty, but like clouds, it dissipates. And you go, whoa, what a supernatural event. They just dissipate. David wants us to understand something else here, though, that's extremely important. Notice what it says over in verse two. He brought me up also out of a horrible pit. Do you see that? So now what David is doing, according to point number two, is he is celebrating God saving him. He's celebrating. God has brought me up also out of a horrible pit, out of the Mary clay. Do you see it? So not only is David saying, I waited patiently on the Lord. I didn't have anything else to do. I stretched my neck out. I kept looking for him to come. And when he came, he brought me up out of the pit. Do you see it? This brother had negative sequence down so deep he could see China. And God came all the way down into the pit and brought him up. The language here is describing the fact that God is the one that rescues you. You don't rescue yourself. See, we, we teach that you and I are helpless, hell-bound sinners apart from the grace of God. We do not believe that you have an ounce of strength in yourself to do anything. You can imagine that you do, but you don't. You and I know how often have we said we were going to stop doing a thing and just kept doing it. You do have a free will, it's weak. It's so weak, it can't help you do right when you do wrong. Be honest about it, that's called addiction. You know how you swear you're gonna just stop, I'm gonna stop, I'm gonna stop. If you don't stop, that's because you need God to help you in your helplessness. And what David was saying is that God brought him, got a hold of him and brought him up. This is a passive act on the part of the one being saved. You can just see David coming up out of the pit because a power greater than David was getting a hold of him. Y'all got that? And sometimes God will do that in a way in which others can benefit from your process of deliverance. Because this is what David is about to sing about. God will deliver you in a way in which everybody knows God was the one that delivered you. Because see, we are notorious sinners. We will get delivered by God's grace and then we'll tell people we helped him. But when the cameras are on you and you realize that God went into that pit and God grabbed a hold of you and God brought you out. Everybody that got good sense knows, no, you didn't bring yourself out. God brought you all the way out. Did you get that? Now, the, the text is also teaching us something else. And this here has to do with the paradox of the condition. The condition that David is in here is in the condition of being overwhelmed. The idea of a horrible pit means to be overwhelmed. In some translations, it's a pit of destruction. Y'all got that? But I want you to get the more tactile element. It's the metaphor of David being plunged into the depths of the sea. And that metaphor runs, runs through the scripture too. We can use a pit, certainly in terms of a well, because often God's people have been cast into watery pits to drown as well. But this one here is something that David has described as well. If you look over in Psalm chapter 130, verse one, I just want you to see it briefly before we pick up on this idea. 130, verse one, notice what it says. Out of the depths have I cried unto you, O Lord. See it? That's the horrible pit. 
that David is talking about. Now, again, you don't know what this is unless you have experience before almost dying by drowning. If y'all know what I'm talking about. Right. So if you if you know what it means to be taken out by a current in the ocean and that current is stronger than you and then the waves become furious. That's the idea here of a horrible pit. It's the word to be noisome, to be tumultuous. I want you to capture the vision of David being in the midst of the sea and the seas are raging and the seas now get David and begin to draw him down to the bottom. That is your Jonah S metaphor, is it not? That's Jonah chapter two, verse three, then verse five and seven, where you are sinking, 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 sinking. And the old hymn writer used to sing it just like this. I was sinking deep in sin, far from the peaceful shore. And that's the metaphor. It's another metaphor of helplessness, isn't it? Have you ever been drifting out there and there are no lifeguards to save your helpless tail and the waters are coming in over your head and you know you're calling out. You really need God in that situation. And that's what David is saying here in the Psalms. Out of the depths have I cried unto thee, O Lord. Look at verse two. Look at verse two because I want you to capture it with David. Lord, hear my voice. Let your ear be attentive to the voice of my what? Right, right. And the metaphor of waters coming over our head are again metaphors of the waters of trials. They can become overwhelming. They can become overwhelming. You can drown in the misery of your emotional discombobulation. And here's the other part of the metaphor. What David is saying, he brought me out of a horrible pit, out of the miry what? The miry what? Clay, which means he went down to the bottoms of the ocean and his feet got stuck in the soil, in the sea, at the bottom. That boy is at the bottom. You got it? At the bottom. That's what Jonah is saying. Look at it. Jonah chapter three. Let Jonah help us a little bit like this in Jonah chapter two, verse three. Then Jonah chapter two, verse five. Notice what Jonah says in Jonah two, three. Uh, this is John two, three. So I will take Jonah and, and we can. This is a great message here, too. But we, we want Jonah chapter two, verse three. And uh, we want to learn a few things for you have cast me into the deep. That's a sea, right? Into the midst of the seas and the floods can pass me about and your billows and your waves. What? I'm drowning. I'm drowning. I'm drowning. This here is a psychological lesson depicted here. I'm drowning. I'm struggling. I'm struggling. Look at what he says in verse four. Look at it. I want you to capture it. Verse four and five. Then I said, I'm cast out of God's sight. This is when you're saying, oh, no, the Lord didn't abandon me. I want to talk about that here in a moment. We go back to Psalm 30, Psalm 130. Yet I will look again toward thy holy what? Stretching out, stretching out again. While he's sinking to the bottom, he is stretching out the neck of faith. Is he not? He's struggling with his hope, but he's stretching out the neck of faith. This is what believers do, children of God, when they have the Holy Ghost. Look at verse five. Here it is. Listen to verse five. The waters can pass me about even to the soul. The depths close me round about. The weeds were wrapped about my head. What is he? Trapped. You got it? He's letting you know what was going, as he, going on as he was sinking. Look at the next verse. Look at the next verse. 
Here's what he says. I went down to the bottom of the mountains. The earth with its bars was about me forever. Do you see it? That means Jonah had hit rock bottom. His feet is stuck. That's what David is saying. My feet are stuck in the miry clay. Not only am I encompassed about by water, which is an alien element for human beings because you got to breathe. It'd be another thing if you was a fish. Now, I know we got some lizard people, but that's another conversation. But it'd be another thing if you were a fish, but you're not. You're a human being. And what he is saying is when you are out of your element, you lose oxygen. And the loss of oxygen is the loss of control. And the loss of control is the fear of death. Is it not? And that's what our brother David is saying. He's talking about a trial. Go back to Psalm uh, Psalm 130. I want to say one more thing about it before we move on to our third point. He is definitely celebrating his liberation. Psalm 130. Look at verse four. Psalm 130 verse four. I think I want verse five. Go to verse five. I'll come back here in a moment. Psalm 130 verse five. Notice what David says. I do what? Wait for the Lord. My soul doth wait and it also does what? Hopes in his word hopes in his word. It doesn't have a vain hope. So you know what David did while he was on dry ground? We're getting ready to go, but go there in a moment. While he was on dry ground, he worshiped God. While he was on dry ground, he came to a Bible-based, expository, God-exalting, Christ-glorifying church where the word of God was taught. While he was on dry ground, he was taught of God. While he was on dry ground, the word of the Lord was revealed to him. While he was on dry ground, he was a disciple and Christ was the master. While he was on dry ground, the entrance of your word, it gives light. It gives understanding to the simple. While he was on dry ground, every word of God is pure, tried in a furnace of fire seven times. While he was on dry ground, he was reminded man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God shall a man live. If my word abide in you, then I will abide in you and God will bear fruit in your life. That's what Jesus said in John 15, for without me, you can do nothing. You and I don't want to be on dry ground and wordless when a trial comes because the word of God are the promises of God. I need God's promises to come back in time of trouble to remind me that I'm his and that he's a great savior. Am I making some sense? Last thing I want to be is a wordless Christian in the midst of the pit. Lord, help me to understand how good it is to be on dry ground. Go back to our text. I'm going to show you what I mean by that. Look at verse two. He brought me up also out of a horrible pit, out of the miry clay. And he did what? Set my feet upon a rock. Do you see that his condition now was precarious and filled with crisis, but his position now is solid and rooted in triumph because the rock upon which his feet is, is the rock of Jesus Christ, the word of the living God. All the promises of God are yes and amen in him. And when a man or a woman knows the Lord Jesus Christ, they are on solid ground. Am I making some sense? It's so so you see the contradiction here. One moment he's in the midst of the water, in the midst of the sea, trapped at the bottom. The next moment he's on solid ground, 
the solid ground of the sure mercies of God in the person of our greater David, the Lord Jesus Christ. See, you need a God like that. But what God is saying to you is when your feet are on dry ground, spend time in my word, because that's going to be your SOS in the midst of trouble. You're going to have to hit that little 9-11 button in your mind so God can answer that text and deliver you from your troubles. And that's what David is saying. I love it. Point number two, he's liberated up out of death. Subpoint B, he's landing on what? Solid ground. Subpoint C, and therefore he is lauding God for its position. If you ever see a child of God who went through hell and came out on the other side, you see a happy child of God. And when you understand that that child of God was taught that the reason why he or she found themselves in such difficulty is because they had allowed themselves when they were on solid ground to get far from God. They had gotten far from God. They played games with God and they drifted from God by their own machinations. Then they went out on the topsy-turvy sea of a world filled with lying promises. See, see, uh, we love to be lied to. I told you that. And the world is great at lying to you. And what happens is the world will tell you to get in these little nice little safe boats. We're going to make our way out to a nice island, island out there where we can party. But what you don't know is that God is in control of the waves. You ride that little safe boat out to the island and then that thing turn over before you even get to party land. And now you're in the midst of troubles. You in between the dry ground, which is where God meant for you to be, and party island, and you're in the midst of the sea. Am I making some sense? A lot of saints are there right now, and I'm talking to you. You're there right now, and you haven't been able to call on God to deliver you because you forgot that you need to know God in the person of his son. And you forgot the word that God is sharing with you now. Call upon me in the day of trouble and wait on me. Stretch your neck up to God and wait. Don't go anywhere in your soul. My soul waiteth on the Lord. This is again Psalm 130 verse uh, verse six. Look at Psalm 130 verse six. This is the way David is putting it. Notice what he says. My soul, what? Waits for the Lord more than they that wait for the morning. I say more than they that what? Watch for the morning. And again, because you don't know your Bible, I want you to capture this. If you're drowning, you need God to come quickly. And when he uses the metaphor, my soul waits more than that they that wait for the morning. He's talking about people that are miserable, so miserable that nighttime is a terror to them. See, when you're going through troubles, nighttime is not a good time because you got to deal with those long nights. Am I making some sense? I've been there many times, particularly in my youth. It's something when you're young and foolish and stupid and you, you now your sleep, which should be sweet, is a nightmare to you. Stay with me. Am I telling the truth? You try to go to sleep. You wake up two hours later and then the night is long. You're twisting and turning in the seat of your bed and your toilet and your mind is everywhere. And you know you really want it to be daylight. You want the sun to come up so you can get on up out of that bed of torment. And David is saying, my soul waits with more eagerness than those who are waiting for the morning. It's another metaphor there just to teach you while I have you. Nighttime is dangerous. The night is dangerous. 
The Bible says for us that we are often in a state where men are walking in the night. We are in a darkness period right now in our culture, are we not? Please hear me, which means the wisest thing to do about six o'clock in the evening is be in your house. Because the hazards of the arrows by, by day and the pestilence by night, all of that is very much a variable right now in the street, is it not? We all know that in the streets, they're getting down. And you are either a predator or a prey. And once you reach the state of wisdom, the goal is to get on in the house when it's nighttime and let the night pass. Let them fools do what they're going to do. So when the daytime comes, you can get on up and go about your business. I know what I'm talking about. I know what I'm talking about. David is saying, I'm waiting. I'm waiting more than they that wait for the morning when you're going through troubles like that because he needs to be delivered. And so our psalm, going back to Psalm 40, notice what he says in verse 5. And then verse six, we're almost to our last point. So we can consider deeply what is said in our main text. Verse four says, blessed is the man that maketh the Lord his what? That makes sense, doesn't it? Now watch this and does not respect the proud. That's a negative principle. To trust the Lord is to not trust the proud. This is why I don't trust my government. Really? Because they're so proud. Here's the next line. Notice what he says. Trust the Lord and don't trust in men. Watch what he says. He says also the, uh, uh, over in verse four, have no respect for the proud, nor such as turn aside to what? This is why I don't trust my government. They're full of lies. Full of lies. They don't stop lying. I have, we have no reason to trust them. They lie to us. They harm us. They take from us. And then even when they get caught, they don't even own up to it. They double down. I'm so glad I don't have to. I'm glad I don't. I'm not one of your political party guys. I've been extricated from that for about 25 years now. Once I realized that the slickest in political world is the best at lying to you, I just backed on up. I know how three card Molly works. I know how I know the switch and bait game. I, I know big time wrestling. I know I know this is a show. I know this is a construct. Do you know it yet? Do you know it yet? Do you know that when they open their mouth, they have already planned to deceive you? I trust in the Lord. I do not trust in the proud. I do not trust in liars. Now, I love what David is about to say here because we're getting ready to move. Now, many, O oh Lord, my God, are your wonderful thoughts towards me. Many, many. I'm sorry. I, I need to go back to verse three. I jumped over a very good verse. He hath put a new song in my mouth. It is. Here's the content of it. Even praise to our God. Do you see it? We don't have to get elaborate with this. I'll keep it very simple. And, and, and quite frankly, as children of God, I've taught you this before. You know, really overcome being verbose about your salvation. Overcome the notion that you got to tell everybody you saved. Stop. Here's the reason why. Because if they look at you for five minutes, they're not going to believe you. <laughs> Stop telling people you're saved. I'm probably the only pastor ever talk like that, right? Stop telling people you're saved. For one reason is you are being saved. And that's a fog of war in itself. That's a fog of war. 
often you are in states of struggle and difficulty that does not make you look like you're trusting God. Or you're living in such a raggedy state of trust that the person on the outside looking at you saying, is that what trust looks like? I think I'll stay in my place. I think I'm going to just stay like right where I, I'm pretty cool right now, right where I'm at. I'm cool. If that's what trust looks like. Now, what they don't know is that the mystery of redemption is that God will tear you down before he builds you up. That God will allow the outer man to perish to renew the inner man. They won't know that, but they shouldn't have to know that. You shouldn't have been running off at the mouth about how saved you are. Am I making some sense? Stop all that. Just be saved. See, because when they really get in trouble and they see that you haven't drowned, then they're going to come with the real. But man, I saw you going through it last time. You looked real bad, but you're looking good. Now, can you tell me what that's about? Now you're ready to tell, tell them not about you being saved, but about the Savior that's saving you. Am I making some sense? Stop telling people you're saved. They don't need to know because, you know, someday you wake up and you don't even know if you saved. Now you got to go back and tell them, man, I thought I was saved. I'm probably not. I'm probably not saved. I'm probably not saved. I'm probably not saved. Stop telling them. Now, now notice what David says. Just praise God. Now, here's a real key. I'm going to help you. Just So, like, people will know something's going on if you know how to praise God. People will know something's going on because you won't be far from saying, thank you, Lord. People will know something's going on when you are going to defer to God for the success of a thing. Does that make sense? Now you're letting the fragrance of salvation emit rather than a ton of words that make no sense based upon your life. Just let the aroma of grace emerge and emanate. Through, oh, I'm just trusting God. See, see what I'm getting at? I'm just trusting God. I'm just hoping the Lord get me through this. See, that's humble. Just, is that humble? See, you, we love to package everything and make a dollar out of 15 cents. Stop trying to tell people you're saved. Forget it. Just, just be saved. And, 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 and this is how God will use it. I love what he said. And the Lord has put a new song in my mouth, even... Praise unto our God. Now notice this. Many shall what? Many shall what? This is the reason he lets you go through trouble so other people can see God deliver you. Many shall see it and fear and shall trust the Lord. Isn't that beautiful? Verse number six, so I can move forward. Many are your thoughts, O Lord, and your wonderful works which you have done. And your thoughts towards us, they cannot be reckoned up in order unto thee. If I would declare and speak them, they are more than can be numbered. This is where David, having been rooted in God's word, he really does know that God has great and precious promises for us that are inexhaustible if you really search them out. And they should impact you because the idea of being saved is a wonderful, wonderful doctrine of absolutely blissful reality. When you come to understand what God did for you in the person of Christ and you come to know the pardon of sins, the forgiveness of sins, that you're forgiven and that reality has borne uh, significance in your life because the spirit of God is bearing record that you're a child of God and you begin to understand all the promises of God that you have in Christ. These are enormous 
means of assurance to your soul, is it not? As it ought to be, the Holy Ghost is there to comfort you in the midst of your paradox, in the midst of your contradictions. And this is why David is saying what he's saying. They are more than can be numbered. But most Christians don't even know how to number them. And then he moves to where we're going. Look at verse six. I want to do some theology for 15 minutes and we're done. Verse six says this. Sacrifices and offerings, oh God, you do not what? Do you see it? All right. This is where we absolutely obliterate every form of religion that demands human works to get right with God. This is where we oppose and object to every system of religion that will tell you that you have to do something to get right with God. This is where we oppose works religion in every system of the world, where it tells you that you have to work for your salvation. When Titus 3, 5 says it's not by works of righteousness, which we have done. When Paul said it is evident that by the works of the law, no flesh shall be justified in God's sight. It is by this verse we come to understand that sacrifices and offerings were only pictures of a reality that could be realized in one person and his name is Jesus. Y'all keeping up with me? Please listen to me. Goats and bulls and cows and pigs and chickens, whatever you are sacrificing could never take away your sins. Listen to the Hebrew writer in Hebrews chapter 10, verses one through five. We got to do theology here because when you and I are not sure about the sacrifice of Christ and the perfections of his sacrifice in your behalf, you will be tempted to do something to merit salvation with God. I promise you, you will. You got all kind of folks in different cults and different systems talking to a brother last night about folks in the seven day Adventists and they walk around as if they got a halo over their head on the seven day. Have you heard them? If you don't worship on the seven day, you're not saved. Have you heard that? That's works religion. That's works religion. Jesus is our Sabbath. Did you know that? The seventh day is a person and his name is Jesus. The Bible is explicitly clear about that, is it not? Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will rest you. I'll take that yoke of sin, that yoke of the world, that yoke of the devil off your neck, and I will bring you into green pastures so that you can rest in my grace. The Sabbath day points to Christ. Then again, you meet folks who want to, you know, bring you back into the Old Testament law. This is what we're fighting about with the Zionist system. Want to bring you back under the works of the law, right? If you don't keep the Ten Commandments, if you don't do this, if you don't do that. Now you are strapped by a system that condemns you. Because the Bible says those folks that were called to do it the first time never kept it. Do you know your Bible? Jesus looked at all the Pharisees and said, Moses gave you the law and none of y'all are keeping it. Then Paul came out behind him and said the same thing in Galatians chapter five. Moses gave you the law, but none of you are keeping it. And Stephen died right after he said, you stiff necked and hard hearted. You always resist the Holy Ghost. Moses gave you the law by the disposition of angels and you never kept it. So Jesus said they didn't keep it. Paul said they didn't keep it. Stephen said they didn't keep it. Guess what we know? They didn't keep it. And you can't keep it either. Paul, James was the one who said, if you break one commandment, the whole thing is shattered. And Jesus said, if you lust after a woman in your heart, you've committed adultery. I'm done. You done too. 
we done. Just for some virtue on that, I'm lusting after women. That'll help you. Okay. I'm just telling you. So am I making some sense? Pastor, don't scare us, brothers. Don't scare us, brothers. I'm just telling you the truth. Women are beautiful. The point is, is that, of course, we're sinners. And that's why we need a savior. Am I making some sense? And we need grace to keep us from deceiving ourselves into thinking we can do something to merit salvation when there was only one person who entered into this world. He's the one that said, I'm coming. He came and went perfectly. And he left a ledger of obedience of which his daddy was pleased. And he signed my name on the bottom of it. And God's righteousness imputed to me makes me just as righteous as his son. Is that good news? All right. So listen to what he says. For the law, having a shadow of good things to come, could never buy the image of those things, could never with those sacrifices that were offered every year continually make the comer there unto what? So they were futile. They're offering them morning, noon, and night. Morning, noon, and night. Morning, noon, and night. And the conscience of the person offering them could never have peace. Did y'all get that? Look at verse 2. I want to walk through five verses and show you the, the text where we have our son. For then they would not have ceased to be offered. If sacrifices and offerings could clear your conscience, we'd still be doing them. That's what he's saying. He said, because that once the worshiper is purged, he should have no more conscience of sin. Verse 3. Verse three, let's keep walking. But in those sacrifices, there's a remembrance again every year of sins. It was constantly brought back up. Let's walk. Hebrews 10, four. Notice what it says. For it is not possible that the blood of bulls and goats should take away sin, nor the blood of a red heifer. Hebrews chapter nine, even if it's genetically modified to be perfectly red, it could never take away sins. The difference between the blood of the old covenant and the blood of the new covenant that we are under is the blood of Christ versus the blood of animals. Am I making some sense? There's a difference between his blood and that blood. And the question will be, which blood are you under? This is the New Testament in my blood, which was shed for you. Our our heavenly father made it very clear. Look at how the Hebrew writer sets this up. Going up to around verse 11. I want to see if he walks into our text here in our uh, verse. We'll move it to verse 14, maybe verse 14. Let's see if if we still still have it there. For by one offering. All right, go back to, um, leave it there. Go back to Psalm 40 because Psalm 40 will quote this and I want to finish here. We're moving into point number three. He declares his own coming. He has told us in verse six that we are to look past the sacrifices, right? To his son. Got it? Look past the sacrifices to his son. Sub point B. And notice what he says in verse seven of our text. This is really important. Then said I, lo, I what? I come. This is what he's saying in sub point B. Listen and do what? Look carefully. Notice what he says. Then said I, lo, I come in the volume of the book. Two or three things to be said. I'm done here. He's telling us that we can know about him when we read our Bibles. So let me deal with some some, some grammar here. It's important. When he says, then said I. 
People that know that the person here is speaking is the same person that said in Genesis 1-3, let there be light. The same person that created the heavens and the earth is the one speaking here. Y'all keeping up with me? David knows that Jesus is the one speaking here. And Jesus is the one that said in Genesis 1-3, let there be light. And God said, do y'all remember Genesis 1? Verse uh, day one, and God said, day two, and God said, day three, and God said, day four, and God said, day five, and God said, day six, and God said, and on the sixth day, God looked at everything that he made, and he said it was very good. This is the Lord Jesus, that same God that's talking in the text now was the one that spoke all this into existence. Y'all got that? He is called the word made flesh. In the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. The same was in the beginning with God and there was nothing that was made that Jesus didn't make. He spoke it into existence. Now, what I love about the Bible is I told you it's his own announcement. He's telling us he's coming. So we want to do what? We want to read our Bible. The second uh, second conjunction or construction here is I come. You see that? It's not I am coming. It's I have come. And it simply means that he comes in the totality of the book from Genesis to what? To Revelation. He comes in Genesis chapter one. He comes in. Exodus chapter one, he comes in Leviticus, he comes in Numbers. He is the one coming in the volume of the book. Y'all got that? We have been teaching Christ in this church for 20 something years. And we know that he's the one that the Bible is talking about. I'm just going to walk you through a few. In Genesis chapter uh, three, when Adam and Eve fall into sin, the Bible says that they went and hid themselves under fig leaves. Y'all remember that? Behind the trees. And they heard the voice of the Lord walking in the cool of the day. Who was that? The Lord Jesus Christ. Why? Because he's the savior of sinners. He's the one that comes and gets us. We don't come to him. He comes to us. Lo, I come. So he came to them. And what did he do? He clothed them with skins. Did he not? What was he doing? He was pointing to himself in the sacrifice of his atonement to cover their nakedness. We could walk all the way through the Bible. We get over to chapter four where Cain kills his brother, what? Abel. And we know that Abel is a type of Jesus Christ because we all put Christ to death, did we not? Abel's blood speaks of better things, even the blood of Christ. We get to chapter six And we come to discover Noah, as we told you before, and Noah builds this grand ark in order for him and the eight souls to be delivered from the wrath of God to come. That ark points to Christ, who is our covering, does it not? And so Jesus is the covering of God's people. In Christ, you are protected from damnation. And then we go to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12. And Abraham said, your seed is going to be the heir of the universe. That seed is who? Jesus, under the emblem of circumcision. So the firstborn child, the male child, has to be circumcised, does he not? And the Bible tells us that Jesus is our circumcision. Why? Because he's the seed that must come. From Genesis all the way up to Malachi, Jesus is the seed. Y'all got that? 
So all through the Bible, you and I understand typology and patterns. We understand symbolism and metaphor. We understand that the message of the Bible is about who? Lo, I come in the volume of the book. And we could go on and on. One last verse, Revelation chapter 22, start at verse 16. I want to walk one out. Notice what it says in Revelation 22, 16. I who? I who? So Jesus is talking in the beginning of your Bible. Jesus is talking at the end of your Bible. Is that right? He the one doing all the talking. Notice what Jesus says. I have sent my angel to testify unto you of these things in the churches. I am the root and offspring of who? I am the bright and morning star. Look at verse 17. We're going to walk this all the way out. And the spirit and the bride say, come and let him that hear say, come and let him that is a thirst come. And whosoever will let him do what? Take of the water of life freely. So God is calling us. Christ is calling us. Christ is calling you to come to him and take of the water of life freely. Thirsty soul, drink of the savior and find satisfaction in him. Thirsty soul, say, Lord, fill me with your presence. Give me your grace. Thirsty soul, you can only have your souls quenched by Jesus Christ, who himself is the source of the water of life. Watch this. Notice what he says in verse 18. I'm not done. I want to finish the Bible with him. For I, who is the I here? Jesus. I testify to every man that hears the words of the prophecy of this book. If any man shall add to these things, God shall add unto him the plagues that are written therein. Verse 19. And if any man shall take away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God shall take away his part of the book of life out of the holy city and from the things which are written therein. Verse 20. We got two verses to go. He which testifies these things saith what? Surely I come quickly. Stop right there. This is the God that started the Bible. He's the one that's speaking in Psalm 40, verse 7, lo, I come in the volume of the book. He's the one that showed up in the incarnation. That's what we're going to celebrate in two weeks. And he came to do his father's will and to finish the work that his father gave him to do. Let me ask you a question. Did he finish his daddy's work? Hanging on the cross as the sacrificial lamb of God. John, his cousin, said, behold, the Lamb of God, which takes away the sins of the world. Did he come into the world? Came into the world as the holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners, Lamb of God. He's the only spotless heifer that can put away your sin. We are not looking for another. We are not looking for another. There is no other coming, the Hebrew writer argued. He came, he died, he rose, he ascended. He sits in glory right now. That is the Lord of glory that you and I are called to listen to. And he sent his Holy Ghost to help you and I comprehend these things. This is what the psalmist is saying in our text. Let me close it here in Psalm 40. Um, you know what? Stay in Revelation 22, 21. I got one more verse to go. Don't go there yet. Stay here which he testifies of these things, saying, surely I come quickly. What? Amen. Now, that little title there is really a title describing Jesus. Because he said it in Revelation chapter one. I'm not going to go there. He says, I am the first and I am the last. He said it in chapter 22, also up before he spoke about being the son of David. I am the alpha and the omega. 
I am the first, I am the last, he said to the seven churches, and I am the amen of God. Stay with me. See, in the Hebrew, Amon, Amon, Amon is the way we say it in the Hebrew, Amon, uh, and then also in the Arabic too. Amon is a very generalized term, and it means certainly, it means surely, it means amen, it means it cannot fail, it means it is true. Jesus is the surety of God, he's the amen of God, he's the certainty of God, he's the grounds of all of God's problems, uh, uh, promises, he's the first and he is the last. Jesus is the one that you want to listen to and follow him carefully. I submit to you, ladies and gentlemen, he is the one that comes and he's the one that you need. Do not, do not diminish this reality. Verse 21, we're done. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Hear it again. Here it is again. What's the word? Jesus. Jesus is God's amen. When we say amen, we're saying Jesus. He declares his own coming. You and I are to look past the sacrifices to the son. We are to listen carefully to him. And sub point C, we are to learn as true prophets of God. Y'all got that? You are to learn as true prophets of God. The prophets of God always study God's word and they study God's word to look for Christ. That's first Peter chapter one, 10 through 12. They were always saying, where is Jesus? Where is Jesus? Sub point C, I'm done. And let him that hath ears do what? Hear what the Spirit says to the churches. This is the way the apocalypse closes. Jesus comes to the seven churches himself. And after he addresses every one of the seven churches at the end of his address, here's what he said. Let him that hath ears hear what the Spirit said to the churches. Let him that hath ears hear what the Spirit said to the churches. If there's going to be anything that you and I are going to do that's going to be beneficial to our souls, both for time and eternity, it's going to be learning about Christ. It's going to be knowing him, having the same kind of confidence and assurance that David had. So as we go, that's what I want to encourage you to do. You wake up every day and you think about what should I be doing? You should be learning more, more, about Jesus. This is why God sent his son into the world that he might save us. Next week, we'll pick up on something more richly. And then the week following, we will celebrate the incarnation of the son of the living God. If it wasn't for him assuming your nature, yours, even the things we're talking about wouldn't even be relevant to you. If it wasn't for the fact that he wanted to bear our sins, to bring us to God, the things that we're saying wouldn't be relevant to us. The reason you can sit up and listen to someone talk to you for an hour and 15 minutes is because you're hoping to acquaint yourself with God and be at peace. Amen.